This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Back at you for Hour 3 on a great day for Talk Radio. The Monday edition does mean we'll uh, talk about stuff that happened on the weekend. That's inevitable, and uh, one such is this tragedy out of Indonesia. In a moment, we'll put it to our uh, Global News Radio aviation expert. How safe are some of these discount carriers? Do they compromise in different parts of the world when it comes to safety standards, so on and so forth? Uh, As far as I understand, this plane was relatively new, a 2017 version of a 737 from Boeing, uh, so it's not like it was aged or anything like that, but uh, could there be other things that we'll need to know about jock williams will be weighing in on that matter now as i said uh the weekend has also borne out a lot of uh horrific news too certainly we saw that in pittsburgh with the uh shooting of uh 11 people in the synagogue well more than that 11 uh, lost their lives and uh, there's also the case continuing to redound i guess cnn atlanta also uh there was a message a pipe bomb sent their way it was intercepted so uh, maybe it was just slow mail delivery that uh, this guy's, the last of his, uh, I guess, mailing order just being, I guess, uh, facilitated or uh, finally making its way into the system. However, on that matter, I did want to pick up on the uh, legal aspect of hate crimes and so on and so forth as the first order of business with our legal expert, Joseph Newberger from Newberger and Partners, who has joined us here on the Oakley Show at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Joe, how are you doing this afternoon? A little somber, given what went on on the weekend, you know, it's shocking to everybody, so pretty uh, pretty somber today. You know, understandable, and uh, I fully appreciate the sentiment. You know, a lot of us are, I don't know, it's like a, a punch to the gut, and uh, it continues to bewilder me that there's so much hatred pent up in certain people yeah. that it would manifest itself this way. I mean, an online screed, you know, maybe somebody's having a bad day or a bad night or just something episodic in their lives, but to go and enact it uh, is like crossing the Rubicon. How, by the way, that's my, my question to you, you yeah. know, being in the legal profession, how hard is it to prosecute a hate crime? I know we have free speech protections stateside, the First Amendment of sacrosanct. How hard is it to prosecute such? Well, in a case like this, it's a slam dunk. Right, right. But I'm meaning something that, you know, is uh, uttered on Twitter, on Facebook. Well, uh, it, if it crosses the boundary to incite others to action against an identifiable group, um, and and it, it then it's pretty easy. And, you know, the digital footprint of people who are on social media and are espousing more than just simply their own views, but then inciting others to commit acts, or their rhetoric is so high that you could read simply that it is to incite others to commit horrific acts. You are now well within the realm of of hate speech and a hate hate crime, and I don't think it is that hard to prosecute. I think what we have to do is become far more vigilant at monitoring these outlier uh, social media sites where people are able to get away with far more um, statements that are incendiary and try and address that maybe more proactively rather than dealing it in a reactive manner, especially after something horrific like this. All right. So folks at Facebook, Twitter, uh, they have a responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've heard that over the weekend 
that they try and pick up on um, uh, particular people who are on their social media sites espousing views which are particularly offensive. And even though it may not uh, rise to the level of, of hate speech, uh, they are proactive in removing those individuals, which I think is very commendable because our definition of hate, hate speech now, I think, has to be taken into the context of the environment that we live in now. Is it truly acceptable to say such horrific things about any group? And is that truly is that truly free speech, or is that just hate speech? And I think we have to redefine that as we move forward. But when clearly these social media sites seeing people that are on the edge of either committing something because of what they say or inciting others, they need to be taken down and they need to cooperate with uh, police authorities to target these individuals, at, at least for investigation. You know, and some of the people who are, uh, you know, entrust themselves with monitoring these things, like the ADL, uh, Anti-Defamation League, yeah. or B'nai B'rith, so on and so forth, uh, say that uh, they cite that incidents of uh, hate or uh, this kind of speech are on the increase. And, yeah. you know, it's well documented. Now, I wonder where that's coming from. Is it just because uh, more of this is allowed to proliferate just because by the nature of social media in general, it's grown so huge? I think it's a combination of factors. I think over the last several years, we've seen frustration in many sectors related to immigration, to the conflict going on in the Middle East, and then immigration in that result, where we have take humanitarian action. Um, there are people who are very insular, who see this as uh, you know some sort of an invasion, removal of their opportunity to work. And particularly, we see it in very polarizing rhetoric from politicians uh, a little bit south of us, but nevertheless having an incredibly um, impactful uh, effect on those who are on the border of committing horrific acts. So we cannot um, discount uh, when our leaders speak, and I mean are because, you know, we are a world community. When our leaders speak in such a way that it doesn't calm and try and create inclusiveness, even though we may have differences on, on various issues, but when it incites anger, um, and identifies groups as causing problems, and, and there's this horrific attack on media and other identifiable groups, particularly by politicians, it can only incite the crazies in our communities to acts. And I think this is what we're seeing now. The rhetoric is awful. I, I, it's so unbecoming of the position that these politicians hold, in particular someone down south, very bad. And I think that has had a significant impact. Well, all right. And, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes the polarization uh, may not be a direct result of any one politician. Like we were talking last hour, for example, where anti-Semitism rears its head, uh, albeit in a veiled way, or uh, it's massaged with the boycott, divest and uh, sanction movement against Israel. A lot of people say that's just synonymous for anti-Semitism. How do you see it? Well, look, that's that's going to exist and it's going to continue to exist. And it has been for decades. You know, there's a general dislike for the existence of the state of Israel. There has been uh, propaganda through the United Nations for decades with horrific resolutions against Israel for, you know, I, I just, unfathomable. I don't have enough time to go into it, but the resolutions are ridiculous, and Israel's a democracy with, uh, you know, with the rule of law uh, in place uh, as compared to other undemocratic states in that area. But that rhetoric will continue, just like there will be, you know, racism towards other groups, but uh, unfortunately, Jewish people, along with uh, people of color and others, have been have been persecuted for years. We're going to have that. It's going to continue. But a boycott is different than walking into a synagogue or a church 
and and opening fire on innocent civilians for no good reason other than sheer hatred uh, that's brought about by, you know, rhetoric and a lack of tolerance for others, in my opinion. Again, Joe Newberger is with us, 640 legal expert from Newberger and Partners. I wanted to talk about another heinous act here. Close to home, Terry Lynn McClintock. We all know the story because uh, she had uh, been complicit in a murder of eight-year-old Tory Stafford back in 2010, and for which she pleaded guilty. And we know the outcome was that she was transferred to uh, an Aboriginal healing lodge in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Uh, report out or a commentary from the liberal, somewhat liberal Macdonald Laurier Institute earlier today, saying that when it comes to these types of crimes, uh, more rights ought to be conferred on the victim. They ought to be uh, apprised of what's going on here and this person seeking this transfer uh they're kept in the dark for the most part uh most of these families are uh you think it's sort of time that we address this in a way you know to satisfy the victims of crime that they're kept in the loop honestly no i think the victim families and victims are involved to a large extent at all levels of the criminal process they are able to attend parole hearings i think by trying to have them involved in administrative decisions for transfers and movements between security levels will become unduly cumbersome and will not satisfy uh, what these victims and families need. I do agree with the article that I read that I think we need to look at and have some reform as to how we treat certain offenders given their crimes. I think that's where we can address the victim's concerns. Uh, So in a case like McClintock, the, the issue is she's identified as Indigenous for some time without any real uh, determination as to whether she has ancestry in that regard. Now, I know the legislation says you can identify, and some people are going to scream and yell at me. I may get bad email about this, but I think in many of the Gladue reports that I read, so in sentencing proceedings and other proceedings, there's Gladue reports done to address culturally specific issues to Indigenous individuals, and this has a legitimate place in our society. I deal with it in the danger offender realm where I write on this extensively. But I think identifying is not enough. I think we need to attach individuals by verifiable ancestry and then de- and see how culturally sensitive programming will assist them or won't assist them. And there may be certain class of offenders, given the heinous nature of their crime, serving a 25-year sentence, may not and should not have the benefit of that type of a move simply because of the crime they committed. And, and I'm sensitive to the fact that McClintock had a horrific upbringing, you know, as bad as anyone can imagine in various communities. That being said, there are some crimes that are so heinous, you may have to have a, an ineligibility period where they can't move to a lesser facility simply because of the crime itself. And I think we need to address that in a more holistic manner. And I'm not overly penal in nature, given that I'm a criminal defense lawyer, but really there are certain crimes where people are convicted of, and it's done on very sound evidence, where I think we have to look at the regime in place as to how we move these individuals between security levels and facilities. Well, all right, and so uh, the folks at the McDonald Laurier Institute were saying maybe victims of certain types of crimes should be notified if an offender is being if an offender is being transferred or if their security status is changing. So in this case, I mean the most heinous of crimes, you still uh, don't think that the victims' families have a no. right to the administrative process? No, I, I, I don't. I think they should be notified. I think notification is extremely important. I don't know how they will play a role in the administrative process involved in the assessment of an individual and then a, in, an administrative transfer, which is made in a facility without a hearing, because that's administrative. 
they will look to, the, the institution will consider how somebody has done on a maximum level and may say, okay, they can be safely managed based upon all the assessments and programs in a medium secure unit. If we involve the victim at every single level, I think it becomes unduly cumbersome. That's different than giving them notification. And then I think to satisfy the families, you know, having them involved at every single level may not be as, it, it may be traumatizing, frankly. I think they have to have some sort of a degree of, con, of confidence in the system that given a certain crime being most horrific with incredibly bad offending, that they're not going to get moved within a certain period of time or have to meet certain criteria. And I don't think that's clear and transparent enough right now. And I think we need to take a look at that regime to address those certain level of high risk, high offending behavior. Finally, I've got to ask you about moving alleged offenders anyway. Uh, a report that's just come out, a secret police report, saying that the, oh, build, yeah. the Toronto Courthouse, this new one under construction down on Armory Street by the Superior Court building, uh, back of City Hall, will bring an unprecedented number of violent criminals to a single location, and it will be extremely difficult to prevent gang-related violence in the vicinity of the new building. Do you think there's something to that? I mean, there's a billion-dollar yeah. building being built uh, for the administration. Yeah. of The largest courthouse in the land will be a locus for all these bad guys to come in contact with each other. Is that problematic? Yeah, Toronto's a, a unique metropolis. So I was involved in the first iteration of the building when I was president of Toronto Lawyers Association, and there were concerns raised then, and the same are concerns raised now, that if you bring, for example, Scarborough together with the Etobicoke region, you certainly have distinct gangs who have distinct territories. You're bringing them now all to the same courthouse at the same time. And even now, when there are trials going on at 361 University, they are very cognizant of the fact that they have to be careful about what members of what gangs are brought in and held in cells so that there's no uh, interaction that could cause more problems. Now, when you amalgamate all these regions into one central hub downtown, leaving aside the logistics, which is going to be incredibly difficult for people commuting from one end of the city to the other to get to the courthouse, you are creating a, a real distinct risk about rival gangs and potential violence, and you're putting a very serious undue pressure on Toronto police to be ahead of and have intel and high security in this area because you've got the Toronto Courthouse, the Superior Court, the Court of Appeal, all in steps of each other. Uh, and, and this was a concern before. I think they can manage it safely if it's done properly, but it's a heavy burden. I don't know if this was the right way to go about it. Interesting. Like nighttime in the switching yard. Uh, you got to <laughs> make sure the logistics are all straightened away there so uh, people don't cross paths. going to be like herding cats down there at the it's big courthouse. Really, it's really a challenge, and we've got stress on our authorities. We've got stress on the court officers, the transport officers, and the police, too. There's incredible stress. And when they talk about the budgets and they talk about the, the uh, uh, less funding, imagine that in relation to the security risk. Interesting. That's a story I'm sure that's only going to gain added currency as we get closer to a completion date. Joe, it's great to talk as always. Thanks so much for the valued insight. Always a pleasure, John. Have a great show as usual. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, 640 Legal Expert with Newberger and Partners. We've got another expert, aviation expert Jock Williams, going to weigh in. Discount airlines. How safe are you on these? What could have happened in Indonesia? 189 souls lost. That's up next on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.